Well, good morning again, and welcome to you. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, oh my goodness, you guys, I just flashed back to pre-COVID days, and I almost said, hopefully on your way in the door, you got a bulletin. <laughs> and let me also just say, I am so thankful to not spend my Saturday nights printing and cutting and folding and stuffing those. Brooklyn, can I get an amen? <laughs> It seemed like 20 years of doing that, and it was just gone in one day. COVID was so helpful in some ways, you guys. There are redeeming things. Okay, I've just typed over top of all of my announcements, so let's uh, rock on here. Um, first, I want to say thank you to everyone. Like, so cool to see how much work got done at our spring clean last Saturday. It was fun and you guys worked your tails off and got so much more done than what we thought was possible. And we are just so grateful. And um, we wanted to point out that there's a new ministry. Well, not really new, but it has new leadership to it. And it is our groundskeeping team. And it is springtime and everything's starting to grow. Thank goodness the long, cold winter is over, right? If we go back to snow, I will cry. I will cry. You will find me sucking my thumb in a corner somewhere. So come find me. It's been deep and dark for me in that week. But spring start times, things start growing, and we need more maintenance around here. And we don't have hired hands that take care of all of that kind of stuff. Most of what we do around here is volunteer-driven. And so if you would be willing to be on a team of people that would come in, and the hope is that you would be like one time a month, maybe even once every six months, depending on how many people are available, to come and to mow and to weed and to weed whack and use power tools like a blower. Is that a power tool? Yes, Rick? Okay, I'm getting a yes from Rick that that's a power tool. So good. If you don't know how to use power tools, this is your moment. This is your moment. Um, but we would love to have you um, sign up for that. So you can sign up by texting the word grounds to our Brookview number that's right behind me. Or you can also sign up on your communication card online. And um, I think that there's not a box for that. I'm just now remembering I forgot to make a box. So you'll have to put it in the comments section. You just kind of scroll all the way to the bottom and say I'm interested in being part of the grounds team. That does not have, have to happen on a specific day. For some people, your team, it might work best for you on a Tuesday afternoon. And you can kind of decide that together. And so if you might have some flexibility and availability, would you come and would you help with that? We would just be so thankful to have it look like this space is a place that we all live and not an abandoned, scary house. Um, also, last weekend, it was just such a big weekend. We had the table. Um, and thank you again to everyone who brought casseroles, hosted tables, decorated, set up, tear down, all the things. And then for those of you who just came and were present and were yourselves, it was just a really cool time. So thank you to everybody for that as well. Um, life groups, we had mentioned that last week, but I want to mention it again. Um, life groups are a place where people gather together in homes throughout the week to just kind of explore faith, to talk about God together. And it's a place to do community to be known a little bit and to have people know your story, to be walking with you through life. And so our spring quarter, we run on quarter systems. It starts this week and it goes through the end of May. And so that would kind of be the commitment that you would be making. And if you're interested in joining one of those groups, will you sign up today? It is the last day to do that, to get in for the spring quarter. Um, and the way that you do that, again, is by texting group to that Brookview number, or you sign up on your online communication card. And there is a box for that. I know that for sure. Um, and then I did mention that online communication card, and we love to hear from you guys. And so we'd love for you to just take a minute, go to brookviewchurch.com, click on the contact tab, and your online communication card is right there. The very last announcement I have is, it's Trevor Gray's birthday. <laughs> And so, I mean, we probably should sing him happy birthday, and we should make him stand up. I know. I mean, we're like, you know, we're co-workers, and I can make you. Okay, here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 
Trevor, we love you. We are thankful for you. We're thankful for your life. So I hope that your day is good. All right, I'm out. So that's going to make sense later. <laughs> but try to, try to like imprint that visual in your mind. It's, it's coming. Um, Trevor, love you, brother. If you're visiting with us, you're like, would they make me stand up? No. <laughs> if you're on staff, maybe. All right, today we're starting a new series. And I, you guys, I'm all pumped up about this. Um, have you ever wrestled with inadequacy? Like, have you ever wrestled with a sense that you're not enough? And have you ever let inadequacy limit you? Like, keep you from living your best life that God wants for you? Like, are you a good Christian? Would you be a good Christian if you decided to become one? I remember when Jen and I uh, were dating, we got engaged. And uh, if you're visiting with us as well, Jen is the announcements lady. And uh, the goal was, I was planning on being a, like a marriage and family counselor, and so I was finishing my psychology degree up at Western Washington University, go Vikings. Uh, but in dating her, my eyes got opened to new possibilities. I had only been a Christian for a couple of years at that point, and it had been kind of rocky, to be honest. I, I had grown up an atheist, and um, following Jesus was completely brand new for me. And so I wrestled with a lot of different things. I wrestled with doubts. I, I wrestled with this like seemingly unanswerable question of like, is this really real? Like it's a great story and I, I like it, but is it like really real? And then I wrestled with other stuff. Like I battled my old life, my old ways. I had all kinds of addictions that would just rear their ugly heads like alcohol and pornography and the, the reality that, that following Jesus was so foreign and brand new for me that like I didn't know the Bible at all. Um, didn't grow up hearing all the Bible stories and my new like more mature Christian friends would be like, they'd be like, oh yeah, you know, it's kind of like, it's like the scene with Abraham and Isaac. And I'd be like, oh yeah, <laughs> totally who? Right? They're like, you have never heard of Abraham and Isaac? And I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, I didn't know this. I didn't know any of the stories. I didn't know the Exodus with Moses or Abraham and Sarah. I didn't know about David. I didn't know the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23. I didn't know all the stuff that everyone else seemed to learn when they were like three. And here I was, and I was engaged to Jen, and she'd been a Christian her whole life. But Jen completely opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking. I'd been going to church for a couple years by that point. I'd really been a Christian about two years. But man, I was a consumer. Um, like church existed to serve me. Like to give me sermons and inspiring music, hopefully. Right? And if it wasn't a very good sermon, I walked out of church mad. I'm like, what's wrong, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> now, thankfully, none of you have ever had that experience. But church existed to, to give me stuff. It existed to give me an opportunity to worship and to teach me and inspire me and, and to help me find some friends. But Jen didn't view church that way at all. She didn't view it through a lens of consumerism. She, she saw it not as something that was there to serve her, but as an opportunity for her to serve. And you guys, she served everywhere. Can you imagine it? She, she led worship, she taught kids, she helped with women's ministries. Like seriously, she would lead like women's ministries. She's like 20 years old and she's got ladies in there that are 40 and they're going through marital problems and she's like, well, here's what you gotta do. 
She led small groups. I was just crazy. So what happened is when I was invited into her life, it was an invitation to serve. If I was going to walk with her side by side, then I would have to serve with her. That was the deal. So all of a sudden, one day, I'm teaching four-year-olds at God's Adventure Club <laughs> on Wednesday nights. And I told myself, I told myself, yeah, I'm, I'm here to serve. You know, but really, I was there because I was totally infatuated with this chick named Jen. <laughs> but the crazy thing happened. After a few weeks with those kids, like, I fell in love. They were so cute. They were so curious. They were so alive. And the boys thought I was like the coolest thing ever. So it was a huge ego boost. So like I hadn't really worked with kids before. And so I was, I was pretty intimidated. And amazingly, the kids didn't care about that. They would just jump all over me. And so one of them would like bring me a, bro a book and, and climb up on my lap. And pretty soon I've got like six kids hanging off of me. And I remember one time I was reading to these four-year-olds and, and they're like draped all over me. And Jen just kind of walked in. The, I, I had all of them on me, which so freed her up to do other stuff. And she was writing stuff on the board. And then she turned around and kind of looked at me with these kids and smiled at me with this sort of, I love you sort of smile. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm in. This is, <laughs> I love this. This is awesome. And you guys, kids are hilarious. Um, we had this one little kid named Gary, and um, Gary had these chubby cheeks, and, and one time Jen was giving out the fishy crackers, and so she checked all the cards that parents fill out to make sure that nobody had allergies or anything. So she's just kind of reading through it and talking, you know, thinking out loud, and she's like, cool, you know, none of you guys have allergies. So she's like, cool, so you all get a snack. And chubby little Gary said, Oh, oh, I, I do have allergies. Oh, I, I have allergies. I have big allergies. And he had this little chubby little face, so he's like, he's like, I'm allergic to amoxicillin. He's like, and it gives me a rash. And he's like, Jenner, like, Gary, I think you can have some fishy crackers. <laughs> another, another class that Jen had that I wasn't a part of, she had a kid that came in one day and was like late. And the kid was like embarrassed about being late. And so on the way in the class, it was like a five-year-old kid said to Jen, hey, teacher, I'm so sorry I'm late. My parents were playing in the bath again. <laughs> you guys, when they came to pick that kid up, Jen's just like, I can't even, I can't even look at you guys. Oh my gosh, the visual. She couldn't even make eye contact. But then she kind of glanced at him and she's like, oh, you guys are holding hands. You guys look so in love and very clean, <laughs> right? But life alongside of Jen uh, would be a life of serving in the church. And what I discovered is that the more I did it, the more I loved it. I loved the community. I, I loved being a part of something. I, I sensed that I was making a difference somehow. I felt like my heart expanding in a new way. And in that season, I also loved having like conversations with non-Christian friends. And I had a lot of non-Christian friends from my previous life. And they had all kinds of questions for me about my new faith because this was radically different. And so I had some crazy cool talks with lots of them about Jesus. And sometimes I would be talking with them and you would see the light bulb come on for them. Or I would see them kind of get chills and get curious and want more. And despite all of my obvious faults and flaws, I sensed that somehow God was moving through me. And sometimes I, I would be sitting in church and I would be listening to the sermon. And I, I would get this sense as I was sitting there, like, you could do what that guy is doing. Like, you could teach people the way of Jesus. Like, you're going to have to learn the way of Jesus first, of course, but once you get it, you could teach it. And I just couldn't seem to get that thought out of my head. And yet, at the same time, I had all this inner pushback inside of me, like, who are you? You can't, like, like who, you can't be a pastor, like, with your past? Are you crazy? Your life has been a train wreck, and you are, you are so broken. Like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, you had a, you've had a porn addiction since you were about 13, and that's, that's still something that pops up sometimes. Like, how could you be a pastor? And you, you got your high school girlfriend pregnant, and you never married, and, you're, and now you have a child that's, that's growing up in two separate homes, and your life is broken, and you're a mess. And listen, you can be a Christian because, like, Jesus loves everyone. 
and he will give you grace. But like, come on, like, pastor? No way. And I, I just, I, I, I had this tension that I was living in because I couldn't shake the idea that, that this was, this was the, maybe the right move for me. But then on the other hand, I'm like, there's no way. Like, there's just, there's no way. And, and Jen and I were recently engaged. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll run it by Jen. And so I sat down and I told her kind of all that I was wrestling with and all the tension. And, and I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know if you can have all of the brokenness that I have and then become a pastor. But like apart from that, I mean, we should have a conversation because this would have huge ramifications for you. This would be wildly different than what anything that we've talked about to this point. Like you would be a pastor's wife with all of the expectations and challenges of that. And there would be all kinds of financial considerations to this, like it's way less money. And so I just kind of went on and on and on and she was patient from wait, waiting for me to get done. And then she said, you know, I never told you this, but from the time that I was a little girl in different churches, I, I would watch the pastors and I would think, I'm going to marry a man like that one day. I'm going to marry a pastor. I'm going to be a pastor's wife. She said, so I had always planned on marrying a pastor. That was always my vision. That was always my dream. So to be honest, I was totally settling for you. So she's like, you had me at pastor. Like, I'm in. I am, I'm totally in. You're gonna, this is gonna be great. This, God's gonna use us. But you guys, I cannot tell you how much of a struggle that decision was for me because I had so much brokenness in my past and in my life at that time. And by the way, I still have a ton of brokenness in my life. Like, if you're visiting today, and there are many of you here, if you're visiting and you're looking for a church where the pastor's like squeaky clean, and doesn't have a colorful past, and always has the right things to say, and always knows just the right thing to do, uh, Brookview's not it. <laughs> you only have to wait like an hour, and then you can, you know, like, but if you want real, if you, if you want like authenticity, if you want something that is not overly pious, this, this might be like a great fit for you. If you want a place where God can use broken people, this might be just the right thing for you. Because if you're anything like me, maybe you struggle with inadequacy. Maybe you feel inferior in some way. Maybe you wonder if you have what it takes. Maybe you wonder if you could ever truly fit like in, in Christian community. Like if you would always sort of be a, like a second class Christian. Today we're, we're launching this three week series called Hope and Healing. And today we're going to look at a theme that just runs all through scripture that I think addresses this. And it is a thread that's from the first page of Scripture all the way to the last page of Scripture, and it is beautiful. And I think it speaks deeply to this kind of stuff. And so today, we are going to run through a whole slew of Scriptures. And as we do, I, I hope that we see a little bit how we can experience healing and, uh, and from shame and inadequacy, okay? So here we go. First page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That is an amazing visual. Now in the ancient Near East, uh, Eastern world that Genesis uh, emerged from, the waters did not evoke imagery of like a pleasant stream on a summer day. The waters, in other words, the oceans, what's being pictured here, they were feared. They were, they were symbolic of, of chaos. Um, Pastor St Tyler Staten explains it this way. He says, in the beginning, the Holy Spirit was hovering, waiting, and when the Father gives the word, the Spirit touches the chaos, and there's order. Suddenly, light is separated from darkness, land is separated from sea, but there's more than just organization of all the chaos. There's actually life. In the place where there was once confusion, dysfunction, and disorder, there's now delight, wonder, joy, and hope. So from the Bible's opening sentence, we gather that the Holy Spirit does not just get rid of disorder. That would be pretty good, but that's not the whole story. The Holy Spirit makes the place of darkness and fear an oasis teeming with life. Okay, let's jump ahead. Genesis chapter 3. The famous scene in the garden. The event that we call the fall. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God, and 
Adam and Eve leave the garden walking east. He goes, so what? Hang on to that. Adam and Eve leave the garden walking east, we're told. Now, why does, why does that matter? Well, east eventually became a symbol for the people of Israel. It became a metaphor for life outside the kingdom of God. And so we are now living, in a sense, we are living east of Eden. This is why the world looks the way that it does. Our world is, is filled more with chaos than peace. It's why, though there are moments of wonder and delight and joy, much of life is still confusion and dysfunction and disorder. But the story of Scripture is that God is not going to leave us alone in this mess. So let's jump ahead again. We're in the book of Ezekiel now. And as we move ahead, we see water beginning to take on a new image. It comes to signify the presence of God among his people. It comes to signify God's power bringing healing. And this thread of water is like woven into all, diff- all kinds of different scripture. It's, it's in the poetry of the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel. And eventually in the New Testament with the gospel writer John. But the, the most vivid depiction of it comes in a prophecy in Ezekiel 47. Now, many of you, you guys are committed to like reading daily Bible passages from the Moravian text. And a few months ago, we were all in Ezekiel, and I read this passage from Ezekiel 47, and it just, it just gave me chills. So I want to read you his entire vision, which is kind of a lengthy passage. It's like 12 verses. And I know that this is a risky thing to do in a sermon, but I believe in you guys. Um, So the words will be up on the screen, and you can follow along there. Or if it's helpful to you, you can just close your eyes and visualize it, because it's it's a picture that he's painting. So whichever, whatever works best for you. But here we go. This is Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. Try to picture this. Ezekiel explaining this vision. He says, the man brought me to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and he led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to to Eglam, and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river, Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So, like, can you see this? Can you see what Ezekiel's seeing? Water is is flowing out from the temple, and what's only a trickle at first becomes a river as the water flows in what direction? East. East. East, the direction Adam and Eve walked out of Eden after the fall. East, the direction representing our present human reality. A river flowing east means that this prophecy, this vision is for you and it's for me. It's a river flowing east from God bringing life into chaos wherever it goes. 
And alongside this river, there are fishermen because there's every kind of fish swimming in the current. Just like there's every kind of of people, there's people of every nation and tribe and tongue, people of every socioeconomic bracket, every background, every degree of having it together and falling apart that make up the family of God. There's fruitful trees along the bank of this river, and that fruit feeds the nations, and the, the leaves heal their diseases, and that river empties into the Dead Sea. And it is, you guys, it is called the Dead Sea for a reason. I've been there, it's dead. It's a huge body of water where nothing lives, like no fish of any kind. And it's in the middle of dry, scorched, barren desert. So the image is when this river spills into the Dead Sea, life ensues. Fish of every kind swim there. What, what once was lifeless abounds with kingdom life. In the, in the place of fear and confusion and darkness and disorder, there's a promise that God will pour his spirit out of the temple and it will be like an unstoppable current of life and peace and joy. The waters will, will heal and bring life to everything they touch. I mean, this vision is so much just more than just like a, a, a warm sentiment. It's so much more than like cozy poetry to be read with a great cup of coffee. This was actually originally written to oppressed captives from Israel, whose lives had fallen apart, who had experienced more loss and grief and uncertainty and fear than we can fathom. Jewish people living now under a Babylonian captor. This is a vision written right into the suffering of our world. And within this vision, there are really two striking invitations. The first is an invitation to come. Before Ezekiel even sees where the river's going, he's invited to get into it ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep until he's he's swimming in it the invitation is is to come to participate in the healing of the water to allow yourself to be healed by the spirit of god but secondly there's an invitation to become to become a part of the current that then goes on and heals the world to swim to swim in this river's current until you like become a part of the stream like, can you, I mean, this is beautiful to me. I read this a couple months ago. It just chills. You yourself become the healing water. You bring grace and love and justice to the world. And as they lived amidst oppression, Ezekiel's vision became like central for Israel. It was a promise of what God was going to do one day. And by the time of Jesus, so more than 600 years later after Ezekiel, the power of that vision was celebrated regularly and, and recited annually. So let's jump ahead and see this in the story of Jesus. This is a famous passage from John 7. The, like, the, the statement Jesus makes is very famous, but let me give you some unfamiliar context. John 7, verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival. Let me pause here because... The key to understanding everything that comes next all hangs on that phrase, on the last and greatest day of the festival. Jesus is about to say something divisive and explosive and wonderful. But to understand why there's so much power to it, we need some background. Okay, the festival that they're at that's referred to here is the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a seven-day-long feast where the entire nation of Israel, try to get your mind around that, descended on one city, on Jerusalem. And every day for a week, they would celebrate together. The priests would fill these giant cisterns with water, and every day at the same time, as people gathered and sang psalms, the priests would stand at the top of the steps of the temple area, and they would pour the water down the steps of the temple. They were reenacting Ezekiel's vision. They were reenacting it as a kind of prayer. It was like, God, bring this healing to our world. Come, Lord. So this pouring of water happened every day of the festival. But on the seventh day, a priest would read Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. And then John says that this was the last and greatest day of the festival. So after the reading, the priests would then, on the last day, they would pour out seven times as much water as they had on the other days. 
So envision this, you guys. There's hundreds of thousands of people gathered around the temple in Jerusalem. They have just listened to the prophecy from Ezekiel, and now they're all singing psalms together. I mean, like if you like Bethel worship or you like Hillsong, you're just like... That's nothing. I mean, imagine this. Hundreds of thousands singing and crying out to God for Ezekiel's vision. And the priests would then pour out seven times the amount of water of the earlier days. And so now it's not just a trickle, but it's like a small little stream running down the temple steps. And the river would be flowing, guess what direction? East. This was a holy moment. Okay, this was, a, this was an unbelievable moment. The whole week had been building up to this moment. It would be reverent and it would be still, like you could hear a pin drop. Tears would be welling up in the eyes of some. Tears longing for God to fulfill this prophecy, to bring it to life. Okay, now, back to our words from John. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, right in the middle of this holy moment, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Interrupting this setting, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, this is the kind of thing that got Jesus killed. Jesus is interrupting this sacred moment to offer an invitation. He's just saying, Come. Like, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. I am the living river. Ezekiel was talking about me. He's like, do you see it? What, what, what you are crying out for God to do is now standing among you. I'm, I'm here. So come to me and drink. If you do, the living waters will flow from within you. And John goes on to say, by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So everything the river was in Ezekiel's vision, Jesus then became in the world. He left paradise to come after us who had wandered east. He called his disciples fishers of people, just like the fishermen outlining the streams in Ezekiel's vision. Like the trees lining the river, he, he fed the hungry and he healed the sick. And then through his death and resurrection, he created life in the most lifeless places. And for all those who came to him, for those who took him up on the invitation, the promise came alive in them too, but not right away. John says that when Jesus made this bold declaration, he was referring to the Holy Spirit, but he's quick to add, John was quick to add, that the Spirit wasn't given in that very moment. So when did they actually receive the Spirit, the promise? When did what Jesus promised in John actually come to life on earth? Well, that happens in Acts chapter 2. So let's jump ahead in the story again. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So here are these Jewish disciples of Rabbi Jesus gathered once again, and once again it centers around a Jewish festival in Jerusalem. Jesus has now been crucified and raised and, and ascended, and the disciples are gathered in the upper room, like the same upper room where they had had the Last Supper with Jesus, and they're waiting for something. They don't know what. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the disciples, now filled with the Holy Spirit, they pour into the streets of Jerusalem and they start telling the crowds about Jesus. But it's crazy because while the disciples are all speaking the same language, one language, everybody who's visiting from all, kind, all different parts of the Roman Empire for this festival, they hear what the disciples are saying in their own language. So this causes quite a stir in the crowd. People want to know, like, what is happening? So Peter gets up to explain and he begins with this. He says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So the spirit is poured out, which sounds a lot like water to me. 
And who is, who is filled with the Spirit? Who is it that can be filled with the Spirit? Peter says, all people. Everyone who wants it. Everyone humble enough to look at their own inner world and say, I cannot bring this, uh, I cannot bring order to this chaos. Look, I need help. Later in the message, Peter, talking about Jesus, says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out, and there it is again, that reference to water, has poured out what you now see and hear. The river of living water, he's saying, the river of living water has been poured out. So, so Peter's saying to these crowds in Jerusalem, come and drink. No longer do you need to go to the temple to drink. The life of God is now flowing out to every human life. You can become a, a, a living well filled to overflowing so that the water spills over the banks of your life to bring healing everywhere you go to the people around you. And we see in Acts that everything the river was in Ezekiel's vision, the followers of Jesus then became in the world. They went out. They went out and they fed the hungry and they healed the sick, and they proclaimed the good news. They were not a holy huddle in a sacred building any longer. Those touched and healed by Jesus became like a river flowing east. But that's not the end of the story, because God is far from finished. So let's look at the last two chapters of the Bible now. First Revelation 21, verse 1. John writes down the vision that God gave him and says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So this is John's vision of what's coming. Not of a like distant, disembodied utopia, but of heaven on earth. It's a stunning concept. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's heaven coming to earth, earth restored, earth redeemed. But in this vision, I don't know about you, in this vision, it's easy for me to wonder like, okay, yeah, but what's up with there not being any ocean? Well, I mean, what's that about? Because, like, I'm like, God, I like the ocean. Like, I think the sun setting over the sea might be as close to heaven on earth as, as I've ever been. So why on earth would God, in his restored creation, why on earth would he take away the ocean? Well, what if this isn't really about the absence of water, what if it's about the absence of chaos? What oceans represented to ancient Jewish people? Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic waters of creation. In Revelation, God has redeemed everything, and what we're supposed to see is that chaos is gone. Okay, to the last page of the Bible now, Revelation chapter 22, John continues. This is the final vision now of what God is doing. Like, this is the last page of the Bible. Check this out. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that should sound familiar. It's Ezekiel's vision. It's, it's, this is the river that he swam in. This is Ezekiel's river. It's Jesus' river. It's the one that he said will flow from within you. And here we see this thread that's woven all the way from the first page of Scripture to the very last. And, and I think this is the key for those of us that, that wrestle with inadequacy. There's a simple two-part invitation in this image of healing water. Again, the first is just an invitation to come, to swim in the river, to walk more and more closely with Jesus and to allow the Holy Spirit to heal you. And you guys, when I, when I look around this room, knowing the stories and having walked through years of life with some of you, I see evidence of that river everywhere. I mean, some of you were really a mess. <laughs> some of you were filled with, with, with doubts, like what felt like 
insurmountable doubts. And then you got, somehow you got swept up in the river and faith like exploded in you. Some of you have been abused and your wounds are deep. But in you now, God is breaking the cycle of abuse. And now he's using you to bring healing to others in all kinds of different ways. It's, extra, it's beautiful to me. Some of you have been overwhelmed by shame. Things that you've done in your past and things that you were wrestling with in your life and you were so ashamed. You didn't think that you could ever walk with Jesus. You felt the weight of your past so heavily that it was like crushing you. But you stepped into the river. You put a toe in the water and then an ankle and then a knee and then to the waist and you felt healing grace. And now you live with this quiet confidence and with peace. Some of you were filled with fear and anxiety and depression. And you have, you have flat out said that you entertained suicide just to find freedom from all of the chaos, all the firestorm of chaos inside of you. But then you, you stepped into the river and you were touched by joy and by, by peace. Like I think back to 19, 20-year-old Jason that decided to follow Jesus. A 20-year-old kid racked with seemingly insurmountable doubts and depression and anxiety and, and all of that stuff that led to very real thoughts of suicide, fears about the future, disabling inadequacy, social anxiety that was paralyzing at times. And I think about 19 or 20-year-old Jason, this kid that was just a cocktail of addictions, a kid that was afraid and confused and broken, a kid who had no idea who he was or why his life mattered. But that kid, at one point, somehow put a toe in the water and then got up to the knee and then got up to the waist and then swam. And you guys, I have so, so far still to go. If you know me, you're like, yes, you do. I know. But the degree of healing in my life to this point is like, it's miraculous. And, and when I look around this room, you guys, I... I see that so many of you have been touched by a river. Many of you are doing things with your lives that you never dreamed possible. And based on where you were, they should have never been possible. But you heard the invitation to come, and you did. And the Holy Spirit touched your chaos and brought order and life. So the invitation is to come. But secondly, there's the invitation to become. I mean, the Spirit brings healing inside of us, but, but that's like, that's just the start. Like, it doesn't end here. The Spirit then makes you part of the healing river. Everything the river, the, everything the river was in Ezekiel's vision, we are then invited to become in the world. Ezekiel's vision was a, a, a river flowing with living water right out of the temple all through the entire world, bringing life and healing and hope and joy everywhere that it goes. And that's exactly what happened, if you know the story of, of, of how Christianity began. That's exactly what happened after Jesus was gone. Now, a few hundred years into this thing, some very powerful people used Christianity to do horrific things, but that is not how it started. The followers of Jesus in those first couple hundred years, they, they became a river of life to the world. Within just a few decades after he was gone, the followers of Jesus flooded the Roman Empire with such life that the empire, the Roman Empire fell to its knees, not before power, but just before humble love. How does that happen? Well, it happens when the powerfully healed become powerful healers. And sometimes we can look at the early church. I don't know if you guys do this. We look at the early church and the ministry of the apostles and we think of them as like, oh, they were like superhuman. Peter and John and Andrew, Paul, the saints, right? I mean, if you're from a Catholic background, it's the saints. But wasn't there real power just in their ordinariness? I'm like, they were flawed. They were broken. They were ordinary people, just like you and me. At one point, the authorities did an investigation to find out what was happening with this explosive new sect, this new movement. And, and here was the conclusion of the investigation. Acts 4 it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John 
and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They weren't particularly intelligent, compelling, attractive, qualified. Like They were unschooled and ordinary, but they were filled with the same spirit that filled Jesus. And for you and me, our hope is in their commonness, not in their giftedness. I mean, the miracle of the early church wasn't, wasn't their gifting. It was their commonness. It was their brokenness. It was that the powerfully healed had become powerful healers. Like how, how you think about how could Peter stand and lead a revolution in front of authorities that were threatening his death when just weeks earlier he had cowered next to a fire because a teenage girl was, was making accusations? Well, because the powerfully healed become powerful healers. Or how about Mary Magdalene? How on earth could a former demon-possessed woman become a pillar in a movement birthed in a patriarchal society? Well, because the powerfully healed become powerful healers. And how could like common, not-so-eloquent prayers from very ordinary people actually make disabled people stand up and even the dead rise? The powerfully healed become powerful healers. And how could a spirituality built on the public execution of a common peasant become the most stunning sociological movement in world history any way you look at it? Because the powerfully healed become powerful healers. And so the thing that that makes you an excellent candidate to be used by God, it's not your gifting. It's not how good looking you are. Some of you are extremely good looking, but that's not it. It's not you having it all together. It's your wounds. The, the thing that makes us candidates to impact our generation is not our gifting or qualifications or having it all together. It's, it's our woundedness. It's our commonness. Um, Brennan Manning, author that I really like, writes this. He says, anyone God uses significantly is always deeply wounded. We are, each and every one of us, insignificant people whom God has called and graced to use in a significant way. On the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals or honors, but for scars. Like, are you common and wounded? Wow, what a great start. Because God's not looking for people who have it all figured out. And there aren't any spells or techniques to master. Instead, by the Spirit, the powerfully healed become powerful healers. Because of the Holy Spirit, the the chronically anxious can become like a non-anxious presence in a workplace where there's all this stress and anxiety. They can become like a river of life pouring into the Dead Sea. The addicted can become a way out for others searching for freedom. The depressed can be filled with inextinguishable joy and then give it away. The quick-tempered can be flooded with self-control and then begin bringing peace to volatile situations. And it just goes on and on and on like this in every variety imaginable. And so what I want to do is I just want to close with this ancient invitation, Ezekiel's invitation, Jesus' invitation to come and become, to come wounded and then to become wounded healers. So first, come. Is the Spirit speaking peace over you today? Like, is there chaos in your life right now that that needs a touch from the Spirit? Do you have an aching heart or an anxious, racing mind? Maybe a sleepwalking imagination toward lust or anger or fear. Maybe a, a broken relationship that needs healing. Maybe you have an ongoing pattern in your life that that haunts you and you need freedom. Maybe you've endured great loss and there's been so much grief. Sometimes God heals slowly by like his sustained presence. And sometimes he heals instantly through a burst of power. But he's a healer. So are you here this morning in need of healing? If so, Jesus is saying, come. But the second part of the invitation is to become. Is the Spirit sending you out from this place 
to bring life to something. Maybe the great hope of your family or your friends or your coworkers, maybe it's not found in your gifts, but in your wounds. You're wounded and you're ordinary, and you are exactly what they need. To close, I just, I just want to invite you this morning to, to receive. Like whether you need to swim in the river for healing or you need to become part of the river for someone else or realistically for most of us, it's both of those things in a big way. Uh, what I want to do this morning is invite you in just a second to stand with open hands as a, as a posture of, of, of wanting to receive, of being thirsty. And I, I want to uh, close by just reading the vision of Ezekiel one more time over you. And just let his words wash over you. What in you needs healing? Come. Who in your life needs to find healing through you? Become. So I just want to invite you to stand, close your eyes, maybe put your hands out, and let this vision wash over you this morning. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me up through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward, with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Eniglaim, and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve food and their leaves for healing.